0: Welcome to Navigating the Cancer Maze with Grace Goller. Dealing with cancer is by no means easy to handle, but our program aims to make it easier through knowledge. Whether you've been recently diagnosed, are going through treatment right now, or are a survivor, our program will have points that you should hear. And by sharing our stories together, we'll make it truly a life-changing experience that you don't have to go through alone. Now, here is your host, Grace Goller.
1: Today on Navigating the Cancer Maze we're going to talk about one of the most if not the most difficult issues for discussion for cancer patients, families and friends of a cancer patient as well. So we're going to be talking about palliative care, grief, loss and death which are often seen as unpalatable subjects for cancer patients who want to be proactive with searching for the cure. But the reality is not everyone makes it through the journey of cancer. And while cancer patients are wanting to find ways of extending their lives, the often all-important issues of death are sidestepped for another time. Yet cancer as a life-challenging illness is just that, life-challenging and life-threatening. Navigating the Cancer Maze aims to provide cancer patients each week with authentic hope and realistic options for finding remission and longevity. But how can we bring this into balance with accepting the possibility of a premature death? So to help us find and explore some of those answers, I decided to ask someone who has dedicated their life to working at the coalface in end-of-life care. So today my special guest is Reverend Dr Ian Maver and he's the co-founder and executive director of Hopewell Hospice Services located on the Gold Coast in Australia. And later in the show, I'll be speaking with Deidre Hannah, who's the founding president and executive director of children's services for Paradise Kids, which is incorporated into the Hopewell Centre. Now, Hopewell includes Hopewell Hospice, Paradise Kids, the Living Well Centre, and the Hopewell Education Services, uh, which is a college of transformational education. It's a unique centre where important end-of-life services are offered. Alongside wellbeing, grief and lost work for adults and children happen as well as education and I believe this centre is a model for future health care centres. So Ian Maver, welcome to Navigating the Cancer Maze.
2: Thank you, Grace.
1: Um, Ian, can you share with our listeners today how your work began and uh, how you were led into your vocation in working in hospice and palliative care?
2: Yeah, sure, Grace. It's a, yeah, for me, it's been the culmination of an interesting life journey that uh, starting out to originally become trained as a physical education teacher, which has meant I've always been interested in the mind-body connection. And uh, then I had a call into ministry and uh, have worked in education over the years in in various ways. And then um, when Deirdre and I uh, came together and got married, part of her vision was to do with uh, hospital hospital chaplaincy and she saw people in hospital uh, couldn't be at home at the end of life, living alone perhaps, or family couldn't cope with the care they needed. So she got the idea of starting a hospice and together we were involved in starting Hopewell Hospice to provide a homely environment for people coming to the end of life who are palliative and just couldn't be at home. So uh, we've been doing that now since 1994 when we started originally and along the way we've been able to uh, create a brand new hospice building that's been licensed as a private health facility so that helps us to uh, uh, be able to bring in funds. But we kept it to eight beds which is a small facility but it's Kept the homeliness of it, and that means that people who come into Hopewell Hospice are there to come to the end of life but to do it in a homely environment where family can come and go, good nursing care, good pastoral, and spiritual, and emotional support. So that's been the uh, coming together of uh, my educational interests, my spiritual interests, my um, interest in mind body connection, and uh, so forth.
1: Okay. Um Ian, we, we didn't discuss this earlier, but um, your model, how replicable is this model? Um, could, could this kind of system, you think, move throughout the world? Because it's quite a unique model that you've created.
2: Yeah, we think so. It's, uh, the whole idea was the local community, instead of totally leaving it to the health system to provide palliative care, we wanted it to be the reaction of a local community to provide a, a context in which people could be cared for and where the family felt included in the uh, care process but where there was excellence in nursing care to deal with issues of pain management and, and, uh, and pain in that case can be social and emotional as well as the uh, ever present issue of physical pain. So um, at the time we started the, in Ipswich and Toowoomba, since then there have been moves, It's been a struggle because um, in Australia the health system tends to focus on hospital care or putting people into aged care and usually in those places you don't have the close uh, care that's possible in a hospice. And uh, so we feel the hospice does provide something different and special.
1: Mm. And it is uh, able to be replicated, perhaps, so we might get a bit of enthusiasm from people listening today who want to say, well, we'd like to do that too, because, as you know, this show goes um, from America and is listened
2: to around the world. It's interesting that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, in her later years, um, I've read some criticism she had of what happened with hospices in America, where they became, in her view, too commercialised, that that... Sense of local community support uh, got packaged into uh, corporate models and somehow lost the spirit of it. In her opinion, that was an issue.
1: Uh huh, oh, that's interesting. Um, as I said in the introduction, Ian, there's a silence that often surrounds this really important subject. Can you tell us more about palliative care, pastoral care, what it involves, what's on offer? And what steps can people take? Uh, listening around the globe today, what steps can they take to actually find uh, a resource that's going to be useful to them?
2: Yeah, well, thankfully, palliative care has become more and more established. Uh, so the word hospice, palliative care, are sort of interchangeable, except that sometimes people think of hospice too much as a building rather than the care that's provided in that context. So. Uh, but the, the important issue is to deal with the reality. There was some research in Canada recently where they found that some people who were given uh, detailed medical treatment, oncology and so on right up to the time of death, and other people were put into palliative care and accepting the fact that they were dying rather than constant curative treatment. They found that people who were receiving palliative care lived longer and had better quality of life than people who were receiving curative treatment right up till the end. That's very so, interesting. Yes, and uh, so learning how to accept the reality of what's happening, we find that sometimes people are reluctant to come into the hospice because um, they have to face the fact that they are actually on the final stage of life, they are dying, and they are dying with their at home or in hospital, but that Coming to a hospice makes it more a, conf- a bit more confronting. And the other thing I find, sometimes I've had families say, don't tell him he's dying, he doesn't know. And then he says to me, don't tell my family I'm dying, they don't know. <laughs> so you get this sort of code of silence, which is, I find, really unhelpful, because then people are pretending. And instead of being able to have open communication at that final stage of life, they are keeping on pretending and trying to make sound as if they're hopeful, and all it does is create this barrier to communication and so people don't really get a chance to say goodbye. They uh, keep pretending it's not going to happen and then the person dying may go into a coma and it's almost like too late then mm-hmm. to, to do that. We had a man in the hospice recently, he you know, came into the hospice, he'd been in hospital and he said to me after he'd been with us a couple of days, You know, he said, I, when I was in hospital I just wanted to die Since I've come here, he said, I've got a whole new lease of life. He said, I'm talking to my family, sorting out issues. And uh, he lived with us for about three months. And during that time, he had such a positive experience that the end stage of life for him was a healing time in the emotional sense. His family were able to deal with the grief of uh, then I conducted his funeral. But he was the sort of person, if ever anyone came to visit the hospice, I'd take them in to meet him because he was the greatest um, promoter of what we do because he'd had such a wonderful experience himself and he uh, appreciated the care that he was receiving. So so I think that end stage of life can be a very positive time if people are willing to talk about it and to accept the reality and... um, not to just, you know, play around, play games and talk positive and say, oh, you'll be right, everything will be fine. Well, the fact is they're dying. And I was really saddened uh, back when the uh, new healthcare debate was happening in America over the last couple of years, a very positive suggestion was that doctors can receive funding to actually spend time with people to tell them about the dying process, to explain to them about palliative care. And people opposed to this health funding came up with, these are death panels, they're talking people into dying instead of trying to fix them up. And there was this huge negative reaction. Mm. And it was tragic because for doctors to be able to actually talk openly with people about the reality of their situation makes the dying process that much easier rather than this constant, you know, word messages of hope as if somehow a magic wand's going to be waved and everything will be fine. Now people may live longer than expected. We find in the hospital some people come in maybe with a month to live and after a week or so they relax and go into the dying process. We haven't done anything to speed that up. It's just a natural thing. They, their body says, okay, it's time to go. Other people come in and they expect to have the month and they're with us three months. They still die but they've relaxed and they've had a longer experience. And their family are so appreciative. There's time to say goodbye, time to spend quality time together. And uh, so that's what I think, talking openly about the reality of what's happening can help.
1: Mm. It's a very good answer. It actually leads into one of my other questions for you. Um, Where we have the internet playing such a big role as a medical advisor today, um, and there's so many promises for cures... Uh, How do you approach this issue? As The authors of blogs and books frequently do not address what happens when diets, supplements, treatments, etc. don't work. Um, We see patients who often feel a sense of failure. Uh, So can you talk about that? We also see um, medical people who are perhaps leaning in too far to giving people a negative prognosis. There's, there's somewhere in the middle of this that, that lies the truth. Could yeah, you speak yeah. to that?
2: Yes, definitely, because um, helping people to, uh, A, um, yeah look for opportunities to perhaps, um, and you know, there's the old saying, cancer is a word, not a sentence, meaning not a death sentence necessarily, and... Uh, Uh, people uh, who've had cancer treatments um, have gone on to live long healthy lives so it's not uh, necessarily the end of the story but for some people uh, it's not going to happen and um, I think of um, a friend a woman who worked with me years ago in another place she had a melanoma was going to only have very limited time to live at the age of 48 and uh, She said to me one day, she said, oh, I feel so terrible, my family keeps saying, don't give up hope, you know. And she said, I would love to keep alive, but I can't. It's something I don't have control over. So she was racked with guilt that she was sort of putting her family through this painful experience when they were so keen for her to get better. And I think of another woman who actually died in the hospice years ago, belonged to a church that believed uh, that if you prayed hard enough, then God would cure you. And she didn't have a good death because she was felt so guilty that she had prayed and her church had prayed and uh, it didn't work. She died, and they were left, you know, because they'd built up this huge expectation, this whole belief about if you pray. So she worried about it, whether she had done something wrong that God was punishing her, and it. And it didn't allow her to accept what was happening. She was fighting against it all the way and so she didn't have a peaceful death because she was so caught up with this belief that God would fix her up and it didn't happen. So sometimes people make dying much more difficult by this kind of messages of hope and so on and instead of facing the practical fact that our body is a very complex thing and sometimes things go wrong. And our cancer cells are our own cells that are malfunctioning. So it's in a sense our own body that we're dealing with. And um, it's, um, those cancer cells are very powerful. Um, so it's really a matter of talking it through in a fairly matter-of-fact way and listening to the heartache. We do courses on suicide intervention and the heart of the message of that is listen to the pain. Listen to the heartache. Don't try to cheer people up into thinking, oh, you'll be right, everything will be fine. Sometimes you just have to talk about your sense of distress, disappointment, heartache, and unburdening that can be the most healing thing you can do, that people can die far more peacefully because they've been able to talk out their sadness, their distress, their feelings of guilt that they're letting their family down by dying when everyone wants them to get better, things of that kind. So, yeah, I've, and I do that, I guess the counselling technique is to sometimes use a kind of third-person descriptive approach. So I'll say, well, most people in the hospice find that once they've accepted the reality that they're dying, then they can get on with living. They can spend each day and make the most of it because they've gone through that reality, so to speak, and mm-hmm. they can talk to their family about it. And there's So you can generalise in that way, and that helps people then to um, relate to that and take it on board is the good way for them to go as it were.
1: Yeah, it's a really really important subject and I know we uh, see a lot of people who are told to just think positively, they're not allowed to have one negative thought around uh, their cancer issue and it puts them under a tremendous stress. Ian, we're going to take a break now on navigating the cancer maze and uh, this is a very, very interesting subject so we're going to be back shortly with more uh, talk with Ian Maver on Navigating the Cancer Maze with Grace Scholar Back soon.
0: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Nestled in the heart of Germany's Black Forest is a very special clinic where breakthrough cancer medicine is offered to cancer patients around the world. Hulvang Private Oncology Clinic is one of the leading establishments in biological cancer therapy. The clinic offers personalized cancer medicine, including genetic testing for detecting and applying targeted treatments. The clinic's ethic is to deliver treatments that are as conventional as necessary and natural as possible. For your personalized cancer treatment, please contact the clinic via their website at www.hullvang-clinic.com. That's H-A-L-L-W-A-N-G-clinic.com. Or call us in Germany at 490-7443-964240. You are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze.
1: Hi, Grace Gawler here. We're back with Navigating the Cancer Maze. And today we're talking with Ian Maver and we're talking about hospice and palliative care. And uh, don't switch off if you think it's a depressing subject because it's a very, very essential subject to face on navigating the cancer maze and indeed in life in general. So, Ian, welcome back. Um, I'd like to um, ask you about Hopewell Services. Mm -hmm. Um, Under one banner, you've put many aspects, and I wonder how that actually works for you and how difficult it's been to educate patients in the community that life and death are two sides of one coin, You know, on one hand, you're dealing with children and grief and loss. On the other hand, you're dealing with the elderly and the dying, and in the middle is the education and um, and well-being. How does that all work?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, partly it's a reflection of um, my interests and Deirdre's interests in terms of uh, founding the organisation, because we... uh, Uh, We wanted, when we started the hospice, that very first year we started a course on palliative care. We were still beginners in many ways in terms of what that all meant, but we wanted to get started. We got people from the health community locally to come and give talks and so on. So we've wanted to educate the community about palliative care and hospice care and also to help people who are dealing with that end of life, family members as well as the dying person, to help them in some way learn and grow even through that painful life experience that uh, as an educator and I studied in at teacher's college at Columbia in New York originally in curriculum theory and the interface between religion and education so I'm very interested in uh, how do we make a, a life experience a learning opportunity and help people to learn and grow in themselves even as they're coming towards the end of life mm. and um, and with children I've always felt that children going through grief are having a painful experience, but if they're in school, it's almost like the teacher's trying to come up with uh, creative learning things, whereas the kids are having learning experiences that nobody takes any notice of. So the thought was to bring together children who are dealing with some kind of grief, whether through a death in the family, family breakup, death of a pet, whatever. But they're having this experience and we want them to be able to talk about that experience and to reflect on it and to see if they can learn about painful experiences and how to cope with them so and that's developed we have about 400 children go through our programs a seven session program uh, each year that's fantastic it it is really we've got about nine or ten groups each week it's in a school term and the other thing is we train volunteers, so every child has a trained volunteer adult who sits with them in that group. So if you've got 10 kids, you need 10 adults. It's a, it's a lot of people. But uh, the, the volunteers, or the buddies as we call them, get a lot out of it by sitting with the child. But part of that training is to learn how to listen to someone in pain and not feel you've got to cheer them up.
1: Not, not fix it.
2: Not fix it, yeah. yeah. And it's learning how to go into the experience, um, there's various models about the grief process, but usually it's to do with going down into the depths and then working your way up the other side, as it were. And if people try to drag you through too quickly, you just don't get to really get the healing process. It's like a broken bone that, doesn't, you know, that people try to use it before it's had time to knit.
1: Mm-hmm, but <laughs> uh, exactly. It's
2: not good for it. Um, and we say also that with a broken bone, you put it in a cast to give it support while the healing happens. So the healing happens from within but the support can enable the healing to happen more effectively. So that's what we see Paradise Kids doing, providing that sort of healing process. We also work with families who've got a sick child or a terminally ill child, work with the child, the siblings, the parents, to help them prepare for the fact that their child is needed. With cystic fibrosis, it's often long-term treatment and then often they die before they get into adulthood. So that's a lot of heartache for parents to Mm. live through as well as a lot of effort. So we try to help them with support, counselling, etc. to deal with that. And We've even got a holiday house where we bring families from in the rural areas who've got sick children and bring them for a holiday on the Gold Coast where there's lots of uh, tourist attractions. And, but we give them counselling while they're here. So some groups give children a holiday when they're sick but we want to give them some learning about their illness and how to cope with it and help the parents deal with their emotional tensions etc. Mm. So that's part of the Paradise Kids program. Mm.
1: A very important role. Uh, sometimes the children um, get left out when mm. the parents are so intense on looking for cures or you know, going from A to B doing things that mm. Uh, mm. children do get left out. And so, sometimes yeah. the
2: siblings of the sick child can feel very neglected because the sick child is getting so much attention.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's all very complex, and uh, you seem to have uh, so many services here that uh, cancer patients could really avail themselves of, uh, particularly many people actually could avail themselves of. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, how you break the ice. Um, if someone's uh, sort of not wanting to accept their death as not only the possibility but a probability Mm. and they might have left their religion, say, or they don't have a spiritual belief system, how do you handle that with someone?
2: Mm -hmm. Again, I try to use that sort of third-person approach. Like in our uh, suicide intervention training, one of the things is how to ask a person if they're feeling suicidal. And... um, rather than just bluntly saying you're feeling suicidal, usually I would be a little bit more circumspect and say when people are going through as much pain as you are, having as many problems as you've got, it's not unusual for them to think about suicide. And I'm wondering if that's true for you. So you kind of do that generalising and then ask the specific. So out of my experience with the hospice, I would talk about what's fairly typical or common for people who are dealing with cancer, dealing with a terminal illness, so you kind of generalise out of that and then bring it back to them in particular, because um, often people in the hospice haven't been involved with religion for years, some still but say they believe in God, others feel God's turned against them and they don't mm. time for God.
1: I've heard that many times. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> So again, I would use that sort of generalisation. It's not unusual when someone's dealing with the end of life to feel that God's opposed to them or that they don't even want to think about God. I think of the funny comment someone said when I, when I saw how my mother died I, could, I stopped believing in God <laughs> so that indicated they had a very naive view about God as a sort of puppet master who should have been pulling the strings as it were yeah. uh, so they didn't want that view of God um, and I think there are more developed ways to think about God than that but uh, rather than trying to preach at somebody I listen to where they're at and what, and, and again attend to their pain, their heartache, their sadness or whatever and listen at that and um, then help them to find some... I want to know what, how they find meaning and purpose in life, how they're making sense of their particular experience, what kind of support, emotional support, is available to them, to what extent they feel isolated and alone. So these, to me, are spiritual issues that... Uh, so, and where someone has a... Uh, uh, some kind of religious faith and I might have a prayer with them but I'm very sensitive about not well, everybody's into praying so I don't push that onto anybody but for those who it's meaningful then I believe that adds something. Just this last couple of days we had a, a, um, a mother, grandmother, great-grandmother dying in the hospice and her family were all gathered around so uh, Last night one of uh, I got them all together and one of our nurses who also is an artist and a musician had her guitar in her car so she went and got her guitar and uh, sang uh, an Abba song um, <laughs> I believe in angels and I said some prayers and we all held hands and it was a lovely ritual of farewell and that woman died this morning so she had a peaceful ending and the family had been supported through that process and uh, So to me, that's sort of part of the care, the good nursing care, but also spiritual care, use of music and uh, things of that kind.
1: Mm. Mm. That's quite a beautiful story. And uh, let's face it, we're all not going to live forever, are we? There's going to be (laughs) a time for each of us, whether we've got cancer or whether it's just old age.
2: Yeah, yeah. They used to... uh, talk about AIDS as a sexually transmitted terminal condition and I remember someone saying to me all human life is a sexually transmitted terminal condition
1: (laughs) That's probably the truest thing that will ever be said on this program <laughs> uh, yeah. um, that was a lovely little story that you shared there Have you um, got any insights or any inspiring stories that you've, um, you know, a particular story that's touched you at a certain level through your years of working at Hopewell? Um,
2: well, uh, just as a roundabout way when Deirdre uh, got a, what's called a Churchill Fellowship back in, uh, soon after we started the hospice and that enabled us to travel to North America and Great Britain and study spiritual care of cancer patients. And that was a wonderful journey, and we learned a lot. Studied at St. Christopher's in London. And, and in San Francisco, we spent time with what's called the Zen Hospice Project. And uh, there was a hospice started by some people wanting to study Zen Buddhism, and their teachers said, well, a good way to study Zen is to care for dying people. And it was uh, a wonderful philosophy. We've tried to follow that through, the notion that the dying are our teachers. And if we're working with someone who's dying, they're having an experience that we've not had. And rather than seeing ourselves as the experts who know all about it to tell the dying person, then we try to listen to them as to what's their experience and how it's working for them. So that notion of learning to listen, and so I've met some wonderful people and spent time with amazing people in the hospice. And often at the funeral I hear about their life story and I think, oh, I wish I'd known this person longer. Okay. <laughs> they did so many interesting things. Sometimes I've been able to learn a bit about that, but sometimes people are not well enough to talk a lot about their life and so on. But uh, and so we meet them where they're at in that last phase of life and uh, uh, they become a real person to us and we, we learn from them. And... Uh, I guess on a very personal level, um, this week's the anniversary of my own daughter's death in a hospice in England um, at the age of 44 with ovarian cancer and she worked with that for two years before she died and we had hopes at times that it was going to be okay, and uh, but it wasn't and uh, so I was able to be with her the last two months of her life over in England and. Uh, Out of my Hopewell experience was able to give Louisa a lot of, um, I guess, insights as to what she was going through and what the journey was like and uh, issues that um, were helpful to her and to be able to talk in a fairly matter-of-fact way about the uh, realities that she was dealing with. So there was a very deeply personal experience as a father having his own daughter mm. go through the palliative process and she died in a hospice in Leicester in England. They were wonderful, they cared for her well. and uh, But that um, added another dimension to the whole working with the uh, someone with cancer. So, um, yeah, that um, is part of working at, in the context uh, where I am. And I find that very... Helpful that because the diversity of hope. Well, I teach courses like the grief and loss course, the palliative care course, suicide intervention course. Um, I do work uh, with. I don't work directly with the children. I just don't have time to fit that in. Others do that. But um, also then working with the hospice and being on various um, health committees in the district, etc. So I find it a very full and varied life. Uh, each month in the hospice we run a group gathering called Explorations in Spirituality and Worship, and it's a kind of open discussion group for people interested in issues around spirituality. Some have church connections, others don't. I sometimes say it's like a refugee camp for people who can't find a home for their spiritual searching. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) They've outgrowed whatever church they used to belong to, and they don't feel comfortable there anymore, perhaps, So we give um, some opportunity for people to share the journey together and I find that enriching. I put notes together that we can draw upon on different topics. So I feel privileged to have that sort of uh, ministry that I can continue.
1: Mm, Yeah, I sense it is a privilege and an honour. I know in my work too it's a privilege and an honour to work so personally with um, people. Um, And, yeah, thank you for sharing that very personal story. I think for... um, For many people, trust in someone who's been at the coalface and who's seen a lot Mm -hmm. um, must add a tremendous amount in this end-of-life experience. Mm -hmm. And I I sense that people um, would uh, get that from you. So as we're coming to the end of our, our time together, Ian... If someone was going through a life-challenging illness such as cancer, are there any suggestions that you have for preparing them for death Um, and any resources that you can provide that would be of use for people listening today?
2: Yeah. So a couple of things is certainly um, I want to be supportive of their family and help the family to get started on their grief process well, and that's one of the pluses about hospice care. Um, If you do interviews with people in the community, how would you like to die? Usually they say quickly. (laughs) Uh, They don't want to be drawn out and prolonged. And uh, and yet, the message I get again and again from people uh, in the hospice, the dying person and their family, this has been such a wonderful opportunity. We've had time to say goodbye, to talk things through, to... And uh, we'd have missed all of that if that just had a heart attack and died. Mm. So to see that end-of-life time as itself a positive time... Um, And I often quote Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's research from working with dying people. She talked about denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Not so much that people have to follow that as a rigid lockstep thing, but rather... And I remember a friend of mine who was in his 70s dying with lung cancer and... uh, I said to him, "You know, Elizabeth Kubler Ross, out of her research, talked about people who are coming to the end of life, and they often feel in denial, and sometimes they get angry, and sometimes they try to bargain with God or somebody, and sometimes they feel depressed, and sometimes they feel kind of accepting the reality." And he looked at me and he said. You mean I'm not going crazy after all. (laughs) So that's what I mean about talking in that sort of third-person way. Yeah. This is not unusual for people to feel all these feelings. And I say to our nursing staff, if people get angry, it's not you they're angry with, it's just they're angry, and they've got a lot to be angry about. They're dying, and sometimes they're in their 40s and 50s and 60s when Mm -hmm. they're dying, and so it's something they find hard to accept. And... um, and I do think of a wonderful woman who had her fifty-fifth birthday with us, and she said it was the best party she ever had. We put on a special treat for her, and um, anyway, um, she, her daughter, at her funeral said, "Mum found in hope, well, the hope, uh, the peace, the peace she'd been looking for all her life." So this is a woman who's had an up-and-down life, and. Uh, I think some friends had brought a bit of cannabis to supplement her pain management. She had that sort of background, you know, but she found in Hopewell and she got angry and the staff had to wear that without taking it personally and uh, allowing her to be angry about what was happening gave her a chance to get through to that point of acceptance where she died a peaceful death. She and her daughter had been at loggerheads. They hadn't spoken for months, and her daughter came to visit. And I even got the two of them to talk to a palliative care course I was running at the time and talk about their experience and uh, what it was like. And so, yeah, that was sort of someone coming to that point of acceptance and having a peaceful death because she'd been able to work through all of those turbulent emotions to get there. And to me, that's an important part of our journey.
1: Absolutely. I'd like to thank you very much for your time today, Ian. I think it's been invaluable. I'm sure you may get inquiries. I get a lot of inquiries on this show. Um, People email. If you're looking for the resources for either Hopewell or Paradise Kids, um, you will be able to find them on the website where you will find Navigating the Cancer Maze. And you'll be able to find on the guest side, on the little sidebar, information about um, Reverend Dr Ian Maver, who I've been speaking with today. So thank you very much, Ian. It's been great.
2: You're welcome. Appreciate the opportunity.
1: We'll be back with navigating the cancer maze
0: shortly. Don't go away. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Nestled in the heart of Germany's Black Forest is a very special clinic where breakthrough cancer medicine is offered to cancer patients around the world. Hulvang Private Oncology Clinic is one of the leading establishments in biological cancer therapy. The clinic offers personalized cancer medicine, including genetic testing for detecting and applying targeted treatments. The clinic's ethic is to deliver treatments that are as conventional as necessary and natural as possible. For your personalized cancer treatment, please contact the clinic via their website at www.hullvang-clinic.com. That's H-A-L-L-W-A-N-G-clinic.com. Or call us in Germany at 490-7443-964240. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze.
1: Hi, I'm Grace Gawler and we're back with Navigating the Cancer Maze with my other guest for today, Deirdre Hanna. Now, we've heard from Ian Maver about the work of Hopewell Hospice and now I'm going to speak with Deirdre, who's Founding President and Executive Director of Children's Services for Paradise Kids and Spiritual Care. Once again, this organisation is located on the Gold Coast in Queensland, Australia. And at the end of the show today, I'll be giving you some resources and uh, websites, etc., if you'd like to look up about the work of Hopewell and Paradise Kids. Now, Deidre has an interesting background, and I'm only just going to touch on some of her excellent qualls. Um, she has a Bachelor of Theology, a Certificate in Transpersonal Psychotherapy and Counselling, Doctoral Student of the University of Creation Spirituality, a Multidisciplinary Certificate in Hospice Care from St. Christopher's in London, and Certificate also in Mindfulness Meditation. Now, there's much more I could say about Deirdre's background and quals, but if you go to the sidebar on the uh, website, For navigating the cancer maze, you'll be able to see both Deirdre and Ian's profile and more information about their work and about Hopewell Hospice and Paradise Kids. So I'd like to ask Deirdre, and welcome to the show Deirdre. Thank you Grace. I'd like to ask you about the work of Paradise Kids Um, and this mission of helping children to cope with grief and loss. So we've heard a little bit from Ian today about Paradise Kids. Um, How did Paradise Kids begin and and how does the program help people through uh, grief and loss?
3: Thanks Grace. I started Hopewell Hospice, as you know, along with with a small group of uh, committed people wanting to make a difference to people at the end stage of life back in 1993. And then I got a Churchill Fellowship to study spiritual care of cancer patients, which took me to hospices throughout England and America. And I realised that although my dream was to create a place of hospitality for people at the end stage of life, a lot of children were being forgotten because they had to deal with the death of a parent, the death of a sibling the death of a close relative or a grandparent without much support for them as they were undergoing the the grief experience. So I thought, we really need a hospice for children, but a hospice where not only can children come and live the rest of their life out if they have a life-limiting illness, but they can deal with the grief that they feel when someone they love dies as well. So the Paradise Kids program grew out of the uh, hospice story, really, back in the 1990s.
1: Uh-huh. So uh, Paradise Kids not only deals with children that are um, going through a, a life-challenging illness or their siblings, but I believe you also deal with uh, all kinds of uh, grief and loss from parents separating and divorce, um, all kinds of things. Can you tell us a little bit about that part of Paradise Kids? Yes. Uh, last year, 2012, we had
3: 438 children come through the program and... 20 families of children with life-limiting illnesses. The thing that makes Paradise Kids different is that we run groups for children so that they're going for a really big change in their life. The change could be a fostering change so that we had one little boy in the program who was eight and he'd been in 27 different foster homes Now he is finding change very difficult and along with change goes grief and loss. Children need to understand that there are processes that they go through that change creates strong feelings, uh, behavioural changes and they often don't know how to deal with these mind-body-spirit changes so they start acting out aggressively or withdrawing or doing other behavioural activities that bring them to the attention of adults, school teachers, often we get children aged six and older because they've just started school. So we normalise the grief process by working in groups with children, ten other children and the child with the grief and loss issue and the big change issue, learns that they're not alone and that other children are going through the same processes. It's a peer support group really with with an individual trained counsellor working
1: with each child at the same time as being in a group setting. Fantastic. I and mean, this is so necessary. Um, I know a lot of the patients who come to see me, they have grandchildren, they have children, and um, I'm often asked, uh, I do send people along to uh, your organisation, because I'm often asked, what do we do? What do we tell the children? How do we tell the grandchildren that I have this illness? Should I tell the grandchildren um, that I have this illness? So... Um, it's, it's something that people don't want to talk about <laughs> a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you touched a little bit there, Deidre, on, um, on how children grieve. Can, can you kind of fill us in on um, what your perceptions are of uh, the way that children grieve? Well, I think that children
3: have exactly the same feelings that adults do. It's just that they haven't learned how to handle them. They haven't really been socialised either into understanding the changes that are happening in their body through their feelings. So they might go through feelings such as shock or fear or panic or guilt or denial or even lack of feelings and then they might start regressing, wanting to sleep with parents again, bedwetting, and other uh, feelings of emptiness or explosive emotions so that we use books and uh, drawing and art and storytelling and meditation to help them deal with these emotional feelings. Then uh, there's a lot of physical changes as you know that go with change or grief or loss. There's, sometimes they'll be more tired than usual, they'll be sleeping longer, they'll have shortness of breath where they hold their breath rather than deep breathing. So we teach deep breathing exercises, maybe they'll eat more, or eat less or have trouble getting to sleep at all, headaches, lack of appetite, um, Nightmares are a big one. We get the children to do drawings of the nightmares they've had and then include a drawing of a safe A safe inclusion to the drawing, such as they'll often draw a fence around the monster that's trying to get them, which is usually their feelings, or they'll put a light around the darkness that they feel that they're in. One child drew a lot of mushrooms around a house because he thought the magic mushrooms would keep out the bad people, which were really his bad feelings. He'd been taught not to have feelings. They can have behavioural changes. Uh, They can get very aggressive, children. They can have trouble concentrating or feeling sick because the um, strong feelings are usually in the tummy or the head. They do a body outline where they can draw where the feelings are and then they make their own connections so that if they're feeling sick, and I do a meditation with them where they remember the time when mum or dad was leaving or died and they meditate on their visualization of that time and then we'll see drawings of butterflies in tummies or frogs in throats or big bands around heads or nails sticking through the feet when they feel they want to run away so the behavioral changes are linked to their physical changes and linked to their emotional feelings and they draw the conclusions we don't tell them they learn for themselves that this is their body their mind their spirit and they have control over some of their inner life changes they may not be able to change how many times they go to another foster home they may not be able to stop mum or dad dying or their brother or sister dying but they can change their internal landscape and that in turn can change how they are in the
1: world presenting to the world
3: yeah, it's wonderful work. I love working with children.
1: It's fantastic work um, and perhaps quite unrecognised in the whole field, in particular in where I work in dealing with cancer patients. There's so much focus goes on the, on the patient quite often um, and the, uh, the children are often left out of the picture. And uh, I know grandparents who have not coped very well at all with when a parent uh, has died, and uh, they haven't known what to do. So with leading into that, um, do you know any personal resources that um, listeners to the program today could obtain if they're having any difficulties with either recognising or discussing grief or loss with their children?
3: We had a young woman come in to Paradise Kids last week and she's undergoing chemo at the moment and she really wanted to know how to talk to her child about what she was going through, whether she should hide her illness from the chemo or whether she should tell the child uh, why she was losing her hair. We usually notice that children are intuitive. They and or they're very good at listening to adults talking to one another or on the phone. They pick it up anyhow. So from my perspective, I always like to tell the child the truth. There can sometimes be um, a conspiracy within a family of don't tell the children, but we've noticed that children respond really well to the truth. So this young woman who was having chemo and had her hair fall out, she had a little child who... Um, wanted to shave his head so that he could be like mummy and then we've got a big library for children of resources most of which I get online there's a lot of information out there about how to talk to your child when mum or dad's got cancer or their brother or sister's got cancer so I usually go through compassion books that's a very big one coming out of America and then last year I started writing children's books because there was a A lack of individual stories about children whose mum was dying or sister was dying, or um, uh, uh, yeah, there's a lot of lot of books out there, and not quite enough. So I've been writing my own.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's a very good idea. It is. Yeah, well, uh, we've actually um, seen some of those stories too, like you've just described. I think when people uh, are going through this it's really important that they know that there's somebody out there or something out there that they can reach out to and a part of navigating the cancer maze is that we like to leave people um, with resources, um, with books, uh, with follow-ups that they can do in reliable areas and especially for this very um, tricky area with children. Um, Perhaps, Dee, you could uh, give me some uh, books, some titles that I could put actually on the website for people who uh, are wanting to follow this through further. We'll also have uh, the Paradise Kids and uh, Hopewell information on the website if anybody does want to contact directly. But really, really important work. Um, I'd like to, uh, just as we're sort of rounding up today, I'd like to ask you about funding for uh, Paradise Kids. Um, we do have listeners in Australia. We do have many listeners in Queensland and northern New South Wales. So. Um, If anyone gets in touch with your organisation or wants to provide a donation, can you sort of explain the structure? Yes, we are a not-for-profit organisation,
3: a registered charity. We rely totally on sponsorship for the children, so 438 children last year. We have quite a small staff, but we do have over 90 volunteers. We have on our website, www.paradisekids.org.au, a sponsorship form, an easy debit form. We would like to get as many friends of Paradise Kids as we can, so that we can even $10 a month, $5 a week, the cost of a cup of coffee, we can support a child. We have sponsorships available for families with life-limiting illness In their children, we have uh, nine families being sponsored for this year and we have another 10 on the waiting list. And the children with the life-limiting illnesses get not only a holiday on the Gold Coast, in our beautiful holiday house, which is adjacent to our counselling centre, but they get to do the illness support programme. So the child does everything that the children in the groups do, but they do it with an individual buddy. They learn that their illness is a loss, that they understand that they are going through um, a really big change in their life, that they learn to tell a story about the change through art and meditation, they feel the feelings, they work with their buddy, they do the mandala. At the end, to sum up their week, the siblings get the same support and they get a holiday as well with a trip to Dreamworld and a night out for the parents while the children are looked after because I think chronic illness in children is extremely exhausting for the parents and for siblings. Often siblings get overlooked because mum or dad has to spend so much time with the ill child at the hospital or doing medications or, or just lacking the energy because of their own grief and loss issues so we do need sponsorship especially in this climate and we would be very grateful for people to look at our website I can also put my books on the website and some resources that we use for children and people can purchase the books online, I've got eight different books for children now and uh, we'd welcome anyone who wants to do our training programs. We do grief and loss counselling, we do palliative care training. So as I said we have over uh, 90 volunteers, we have 80 in the hospice, 90 working with Paradise Kids, we've got another 50 about to start their training in February. But as you know, volunteers uh, have lives as well and uh, we need to keep these children looked after. They're the future of our planet. We need them to be healthy and with inner life skills that can sustain them over the many changes that they're going to go through throughout their
1: life journey. Fantastic, Deirdre. Thank you so much for coming on Navigating the Cancer Maze today. I think with yourself and uh, Ian as a pair, the work you've done, you work at the coalface, uh, it's not easy work. And, um, you know, I take my hat off to the both of you for the achievements that you've made in, the, in creating Hopewell Paradise Kids and your education programs. Thank you. Thank you, Grace, because I probably would not be here if you had not helped me personally navigate the
3: cancer maze when I was (laughs) diagnosed seven years ago. So thank you for helping me with my life journey.
1: Great, Dee. Okay, it's um, time for taking a break on navigating the cancer maze. We're going to be back shortly, and we'll do a little bit of a wind-up of today's show. Um, So don't go away. Get yourself maybe a cup of tea or coffee. We'll be
0: back soon. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Nestled in the heart of Germany's Black Forest is a very special clinic where breakthrough cancer medicine is offered to cancer patients around the world. Holvung Private Oncology Clinic is one of the leading establishments in biological cancer therapy. The clinic offers personalized cancer medicine, including genetic testing for detecting and applying targeted treatments. The clinic's ethic is to deliver treatments that are as conventional as necessary and natural as possible. For your personalized cancer treatment, please contact the clinic via their website at www.hullvang-clinic.com. That's H-A-L-L-W-A-N-G-clinic.com. Or call us in Germany at 490-7443-964240. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's one 472 5792 International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegahler.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze.
1: Hi, it's Grace Gawler here, and we're back with uh, Navigating the Cancer Maze and uh, talking about the very important subjects that we have been uh, today with uh, Ian Maver and Deidre Hannah from Hopewell Hospice and Paradise Kids. Um, I've uh, been quite touched by the work of Hopewell and I'd really encourage anybody who's been listening to the show today to get in touch with me. I've also listed the uh, Hopewell um, website, the Paradise Kids website, and later today I'm going to be putting up on my website, which is www.gracegawlinstitute.com, um, a list of resources that people might find helpful helpful. I think it's often um, of great use if people can feel this area in the introduction anyway is a little bit depersonalised and you can do some of your own exploration. Um, One of the things I did want to touch on uh, that came from both conversations today with uh, N D is that this also, um, this area of hospice and palliative care and the way people approach it, Um, it also leads very much into the three stages of healing model. And uh, that was a model that was developed based on questionnaires that I gave to patients with uh, life-threatening illness, quite a lot of them severe life-threatening illness over many years. And the outcomes of those questionnaires actually formed into a model And what uh, Ian and uh, Deirdre have both touched on today is uh, talking about stage one, stage two and stage three of that model. If you want to know more detail about that, once again, please contact me or go back and listen to a couple of the earlier shows because uh, we did touch on this quite a bit. Um, Just in brief... The stage one really relates to that time when someone's diagnosed and they get really, really busy. Um, We know that there's PTSD. We know there's a lot of other um, emotional and psychological issues going on. It's often the worst time to make the choice. And it's often made out of an emotional um, choice too – people get very emotionally exhausted and very tired. And stage two is that will to heal stage. And that's when you move on from that. Uh, You become more self-empowered and you start to do some exploration and time uh, actually for healing. Um, Moving on from that comes stage three. And I call that stage the will to know your purpose. Uh, People say that this stage is a place where they find life meaning. And that's very much uh, what the main subject and context of today's conversation has been so whether we're well or whether we're ill i think it's a very good area to look at life meaning and i'm very grateful for d and ian for being a part of today's show so join us again next week on navigating the cancer maze as always it's been a pleasure and uh, don't hesitate to contact me should it be necessary back then have a great week bye for now
0: Thank you again for listening to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Please join your host, Grace Goller, again next Friday at 12 noon U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Remember, cancer is not something you have to face alone.